Now, the very first funeral that I did when I was the pastor in the Baptist church in Warrnambool was for a family who lost a little boy. He was just three years of age and, uh, and uh, passed away from unknown causes, uh, cot death situation. And I, I just can't begin to imagine the kind of grief that that family experienced in those moments. I do remember that afternoon we got a phone call at the church and I was asked if I could go up to the hospital and the hospital was about um, three or four blocks away and walked up to ED, walked into that space and even to this day I can still remember the image of the mother sitting there with her little boy in her arms sitting on one of those sterile kind of hospital chairs, you know the kind I mean, uh, just rocking backwards and forwards uh, expressing her grief physically and uh, uh, with her tears and, and with her cries. Uh, it was just a horrible, horrible situation. Uh, about a week later, perhaps less than a week later, I had to do the funeral. It was actually the first funeral that I'd done in that church. And I tell you what, as a relatively inexperienced pastor, it was, it was a challenge. I didn't know what to say. How, how do you address a situation like that and so I did the very best that I could to put together a service and on the day again the family were sitting in the front row the estranged father was sitting there too and you could tell by his body language he was not happy he was he was deeply grieving himself and his grief had morphed to some degree of anger I guess and so I stood up there and at the start of the service I said these words and exactly these words I grabbed the file out and had a look at them I said, I think it would be a fair observation to say that many of us here today feel assaulted. The sudden death of, I'll leave the name out, is like a slap in the face. We didn't expect it, it came suddenly. It hurts like crazy and we've been left in a state of disbelief, shock and deep pain. Grief that's anticipated is hard enough. We can begin the process of preparing ourselves for that. But grief that unexpectedly ambushes us when we've not anticipated, anticipated it, almost overwhelms us. Today is a painful reminder that everything in our world is not sweetness and light. And I watched this guy as I was saying these words and you could see the tension draining from his body. It was palpable. You could see it happening. And it wasn't until after the service, I was chatting to a social worker who happened to be there who had a, a very strong relationship with the family. And this person said to me, that introduction was brilliant. It was exactly what was needed. And it was what was needed for this guy. And she said, it was because you didn't get up there and make any kind of um, sweet kind of observations, you know, platitudes about life and death and love and all this kind of stuff. You named what was going on. And for him having that grief named meant acknowledging that grief and he was then able to start processing that in this place. That was a significant learning moment for me and uh, really significant in terms of how I went about other funerals, particularly uh, for young people, for children or for young people. Well, today we're going to take a little bit of a deviation again, as we did last week from the book of Acts. Last week we went to Psalm 15 and uh, addressed the question, who may stand on your holy hill today? We're going back to the Psalms 
and we have already read Psalm 88. It is uh, an interesting psalm. We'll say more about that in a few moments. And next week we're going to be back in the scriptures again but on a slightly different tack because today I want to talk about grief and I want to talk about the grief that we have all experienced around coronavirus. And you might be scratching your head and saying, well, coronavirus has hardly impacted me at all or it's had a significant impact, I don't know. Uh, But there is a sense for each one of us as we have lost certain parts of activity in our life or opportunity that we might have or normalcy that there's grief and we need to name that grief and we need to address that grief. Next week we're going to take a slightly different tack and talk more broadly about where we're at as a church here in the Wodonga and District Baptist Church. So if you're not normally part of our congregation then uh, then I apologise in advance. Uh, we're going to talk fairly specifically about what the Lord's saying into our space. I suspect actually uh, some of the things that I'll talk about next week will be generally being said into any church context or any space. Uh, but specifically, what is our ongoing response and activity in this new environment that the coronavirus has shaped for us? But if you think about it, in a very real sense, grief is a response to some kind of loss. And that's really obvious if you think about the grief that I just explained with the loss of that child or the loss of a relationship. But it can be uh, all sorts of loss. We grieve when we lose um, certain habits, perhaps, or patterns of behaviour or normalcy in life. Uh, We grieve if we move from one town to another because we've lost something. We might have gained other things, of course, but uh, there's things that we need to grieve. At a church level, uh, we grieve the loss of being able to meet together. And for some people, that's been really acute because the opportunity to worship with others and be in God's presence with uh, with God's people is so significant. Fellowship and relationship and connection Uh, corporate worship, the refuelling and then the encouraging that comes about in that space has been lost. And so there's some grief associated with that. And at a personal level, uh, there might be other grief. I spoke to some of my colleagues in ministry around the state uh, in this past week and asked them, uh, I was kind of cheating actually, I thought I'll get them to help me with my sermon, that's always a smart idea. Uh, And I said to them, what are some of the things that you are grieving that you've lost? And it didn't take long for them to identify some of those things. For example, I said, we've, we've missed the opportunity of seeing people in their homes face to face, particularly in Victoria, of course, uh, where we haven't been able to visit. Some of these guys are in Melbourne. They've not even been able to leave their homes. They've been recording their sermons in their bedrooms or in their offices or wherever. They described the grief around having to wear face masks. Again, a curiously Victorian thing. And uh, let me just say, they are such a trial if you have to wear glasses like I do most of the time. It's a bit like sometimes walking around in perpetual fog, isn't it? For those of you who wear glasses, you know what it's like. And uh, I must say that um, my wife is a fantastic seamstress. She's been designing and, and changing them up to try and stop the air from coming up across the bridge of my nose so that I can see. Uh, But it's a a grief when we lose the capacity to actually see people's faces properly. I've said to a few people, um, I don't have a big issue with my hearing, it's pretty good, but you don't realise how much lip reading you do. 
and not being able to see a person's mouth as they speak. That's a loss. Uh, They identified the loss uh, that uh, anybody who stood in front of a congregation knows, uh, the loss of feedback. You know, normally on a Sunday, we're kind of walking around, talking to the congregation, making eye contact with this person, talking to that person. There's nobody else here. And there's no feedback that comes back. You have no idea how much energy is generated from within the gathering of people as you speak. And we've had to learn, and Matt and I have had to learn this, and uh, I think Matt's done a great job of this too, uh, just generate the electricity that you need to be able to, uh, to share. And, and we've been deeply blessed by some of the folks who've preached in our context being able to do that without that feedback loop, which is actually so helpful. But then there's other things as well. We've all uh, lost access to services and businesses um, I, I acknowledge the grief that some of our people, some, some who are with us here today have experienced because they've just not been able to see parents or grandparents or children or grandchildren. And that's been so frustrating. And there's been a lot of pain associated with that and a lot of grief associated with that. There's been grief for many people around perceived injustice. You know, why are we constrained as we are when in fact there's no obvious reason for that to be the case. There's behaviour going on here which we're not allowed to participate in. Well, you know what I'm trying to say. There's been grief too because the strategies that we often use to overcome the deficits in lots of areas of life, whether at home or in the workplace or in the church, have just not been easy to find. Ask any, any person who teaches in a school and who's had to go from face-to-face to online, that's hard work. And likewise, ask any parent who's had to go from off you go to school now to suddenly having to supervise homeschooling, that's been hard work and there's grief associated with all of that kind of uh, environment. And one of the things that we're inclined to do when uh, we have experienced grief, whether it's the grief of the loss of a loved one or the grief, as I have just uh, shared with you through the past five months with the challenges of COVID-19, is we try and find a new equilibrium. It's a bit like an engine. It it finds an equilibrium. Everything works together and suddenly one part changes and it has to find a whole new equilibrium. Families are like this. If you understand family systems, uh, you know if a a new child is born into a family, the family has to reshape and find a new equilibrium. Likewise, as a child grows and leaves the family, or if a loved one passes away, or there's some other break in relationship, the equilibrium is broken and has to be re-established. And one of the challenges that we've faced through this past five months is that the, the, the landscape keeps changing. And what uh, is working for us one week, the new normal, which we talk about, uh, we think, yeah, we're just getting used to this. Suddenly it changes again and we've got to find a whole new equilibrium. Now, you might say to me today, come on, David, you can hardly, prep, uh, you can hardly compare the grief that we've experienced over the past five months as a community wrestling with this pandemic to the kind of grief that is associated with the loss of a loved one. And you'd be right. They're they're quite different, but they're actually quite similar in lots of ways too. 
and we shouldn't minimise either. In fact, one of the things that I want to do today, and perhaps one of the things that kind of motivated me to think about this, is to challenge this idea that is so entrenched in our community, and that is as soon as we experience grief, we try to normalise things. We try to find an equilibrium and move on as quickly as we can. I'm kind of mindful of, uh, of an experience we had while we were working in Papua New Guinea. We had a, uh, uh, what you call a house helper, a house Mary, a lady who helped in the house. It was expected of us. It wasn't that we were particularly rich and so we were able to employ someone to come in. Uh, it was a, a normal part of life and a way of investing in the families that we were serving. And, uh, and our house Mary Mai passed away. She was a young woman. Uh, probably not more than 30 years of old, a young, uh, 30 years of age. Uh, she had a young family and she had um, a condition that would be eminently curable, eminently curable here in our context where we have the medical facilities, but in that context there was, there was nothing. And I still remember the day that she died. She was laid out up in the guest house, which is a kind of a common uh, space, and friends and family from her family line, from her tribal area, her clan area came, and others too, ourselves included, and grieved. And I, up until that point, had never seen grief expressed in quite this way. It was loud, it was gesticulating, there was movement, there was, there was obvious pain being expressed by the people in that context. And you know, part of me cringed a bit because as a Westerner, we've sanitised death and we try to minimise grief. But here it was just being embraced openly. And I reflected on that and I thought, you know what, maybe there's something here that I need to learn. And actually there was something there that I needed to learn. On another occasion, uh, one of my students whose name was Rodney. Rodney was from Milne Bay province and so he was not a guy of tall stature. Uh, he and his wife Linda were expecting a baby and rather unfortunately that baby died just as, uh, as it was coming to the point of birth. They lost their firstborn. And I went to the hospital that night over in Kujip and, and the first thing that Rodney did was just come and wrap his arms around me and he cried and he cried. And I learnt by that stage to embrace that grief and I cried with him. And his face was here and my shirt was soaked and his head was here and his head was soaked. And yet, I want to say to you, it was one of the most liberating experiences I've had, naming the grief, acknowledging the grief and expressing that grief in that space. You know, in both of those places, it would have been really easy as a Christian to say, oh, you'll get over it, you know. Uh, she's in a better place now. Or, oh, you can always have another baby, you know, move on, move on. But that would have been really abusive. And it would have been quite stupid to do that. And I've learnt to hold my tongue because in those contexts and many other contexts, it's actually healthier and it makes processing grief a healthier process to name it and to acknowledge that it's there and recognise that the losses that we've experienced, whether they be the loss of a loved one or the loss of normalcy, as has been the case uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, actually brings with it grief 
And the only way to work through that is to put our finger on it and say, this is what it is. And I say these things with some confidence because that's actually the pattern of the scripture. You see, the Bible doesn't shy away from grief. The scripture doesn't minimise grief. And the psalm that we read earlier in the service, Psalm 88, is a psalm that articulates significant grief. And today I want to take you for a few moments to what is perhaps one of the darkest places in the scripture. I'm I'm actually reasonably confident in saying it is probably the darkest place in the scripture. A passage that you probably wouldn't turn to when you needed a bit of a pick-me-up. There's lots of other psalms that, um, that can do that. And don't be surprised today if you've never heard a message from Psalm 88. It is not a preacher's go-to in terms of here's something that's going to encourage and uplift people. The Psalms are absolutely places that we might readily turn to to find the language of praise and thankfulness. And a week or so ago, Matt made that point uh, online himself uh, on Facebook. I think it might have been just acknowledging that in, in, a, in a place of... of disappointment or depression or whatever the psalms can be terrific in articulating God's goodness and thankfulness but you know there's actually almost as many psalms written with a with a sense of thankfulness and praise as there are psalms of lament and grief in fact across the whole the whole collection of 150 psalms it's pretty roughly 50 50 about halfway uh, between psalms of lament and loss and sorrow and psalms of praise and, uh, and thankfulness. Psalm 88, interestingly enough, was written, we believe, by a character named Heman, Heman the Ezraite. If perchance Heman is the same Heman that's mentioned in other parts of the scripture, and there's a pretty good chance that he is because the other references, which I'm not going to fill up our sermon with today, are from books that were around about the same time as this would have been written. If he's the same Heman, there's a couple of things that we might know about him, which is rather interesting. First of all, he was a man of great wisdom. He's noted as someone who had great wisdom. We also note that he was a, a, a talented musician, a guy who had significant talent. We know that he had exceptional sons and daughters. His family was blessed enormously and he was one of those who actually served the king. So here's a guy who's, in many respects, he's got a well-sorted life. If it was the same Heman, he was wise, he was talented, he was accomplished and he was blessed, which invites us to make the observation that grief is the respecter of no person. In fact, we could go a step further even in our observation about Heman and his circumstances because in verse 1, he says, O Lord, the God who saves me, he cries out to God. There's a desire to express himself to God. Day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you, verse 2. Turn your ear to my cry. There's a longing in Heman to reach out to God. But there's language here in this psalm which suggests to me that Heman was actually expressing, uh, sorry, Heman was actually experiencing uh, what could potentially have been quite deep depression. 
There's a sense of desperation as he cries out to God. Turn your ear and hear my cry, he says there in verse 2, which is kind of indicative of a sense of isolation from God, as though God's ear has been turned away from him. In verse 3, he expresses his sense of despair, for he says, my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near to the grave. He's just overwhelmed by this darkness that is around him and he senses that death is not too far away. In fact, in verse 4, he says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. That kind of suggests to us that even people who were looking at him were saying, man, this guy isn't going to be long for this earth. This is a guy who's in real despair. And if we jump to verse 13, he says, but I cry to you for help, O Lord. I cry out in the morning and my prayer comes before you. But why do you reject me and hide your face from me? If indeed... The author is who we think he is, this guy who was blessed in so many ways. His background actually puts pay to a common misunderstanding about anxiety or depression, and that is that it comes about because of some deficiency in the person. That is patently not true. That is not the case. Nor is there in his life or even in his expression here any obvious sin that could be uh, drawn as the cause of his circumstances. He is a guy, a godly man who is sitting in a dark place, crying out to God, feeling that he's not being heard, trying to have faith, but in his situation, feeling that even God is afflicting him and he sees nothing but death and darkness. It's a dark psalm. But one of the reasons I chose to go with it today is because for some people this is their lived experience. And so it describes the very emotions that they feel. I cry out to God. I've asked God to intervene. I've asked for life. I've asked for health. I've asked for clarity. I've asked for a lifting of this depression. But nothing seems to happen. And the longer I have lived the more I have recognised that at some point we will all experience this kind of emotion to some degree, perhaps at different points along the continuum. And we don't know why. We can't necessarily just make an easy assumption that it's because of this or that or something else. There's not necessarily an answer. Broadly speaking, we might label it as a mental health thing, as this continuum where we all kind of move backwards and forwards on. But even that's not a great explanation, is it, sometimes? I'm really glad, though, that this psalm, dark and all that it is, has been included in the Bible because it doesn't sugarcoat the human condition. It doesn't make it sound like, and the Bible doesn't actually uh, say to us, you know, we should be bouncing around happy, uh, cheery, you know, joyful all the time. In fact, one of the reasons, and I've said this before, one of the reasons I think this word is so trustworthy is because it presents its heroes, warts and all, and it describes life as I have understood it and experienced it and as many others have understood it and experienced it too. I remember having an... Uh, not so much an argument, but a debate one time with a young guy who, and I think I've told this story too, 
he had embraced another religion that just talked about the sweetness and light that we can move into and how wonderful it will be when everything is united and all people live in harmony and we're all swimming with dolphins and butterflies and all that kind of stuff. And I said to this chap, you know what? That's not my experience of life. That's not the reality that we deal with. The reality that we deal with is as pain and, and loss and grief and joy and happiness and it's all kind of mixed up together and that's what's described here in God's word. God's word doesn't ignore the times, the reality of the times when uh, God seems distant to us, when our prayers seem to go unanswered, when to all intents and purposes life is a lot like Heman describes it here in Psalm 88. But let's think for a few moments about what Psalm 88 might teach us and then conclude with some reflections about what grief might actually do for us as well. And you can uh, do this within whatever context you like, whether it's the grief associated with losing someone dear to you, loss of a job, loss of whatever it might be. The first observation from the psalm is this, as I've already said, despair is a very real condition that we will all experience at some stage in life, whether as a result of loss of a loved one or as a byproduct of, of our, our mental health. And there will be times when we might feel that God does not answer prayer or even hear our prayer, that God is distance from us, that God is obtuse or even difficult. There'll be times in life where we may not turn our backs on God, but it's difficult to face God. And it's hard to pray in those spaces. But I'm encouraged by passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 26, which says, In this way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. In other words, in those moments when, when we've run out of words, when we don't know what to say, when there's nothing that we can say, God's Spirit takes over and speaks on our behalf. And even the Spirit groans at times. The second observation that I'd make is this. It's still possible to speak to God even in those dark places. You'll notice the way that Heman started. Oh, Lord, the God who saves me. He affirmed God as God, even though he wasn't experiencing much even though his walk with God was very cold and dark, even though he had no sense of God around him, he was still able to say, you are the God who saves. God does not change. This uh, psalm is grouped in a family of psalms called the Psalms of Lament. It's, uh, it's, we could translate that by saying uh, this is actually a psalm of complaint. The author assumes, though, even though this psalm is a psalm of complaint, the normal, uh, the normal state of life is a state of wanting to praise God and wants to get back to that place. And in verse 9, if you have a look at that, he says, uh, I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. I want to be in this place. It's still possible to speak to God even in that place of despair. He cries out. 
Heman cries out to the Lord because he knows the place that he's in is not the place that he wants to be in, nor is it the place that God wants him to be in. <clears throat> it's really significant too that this psalm has not been edited out of the Bible. You know, if I was trying to put together a book like this, I would probably have left this one out because it's so unpleasant. And so rather controversially, we have to ask the question, why is it in here? And what does it tell us? One of the things that we could potentially say, and I say this really carefully, is it's okay to complain to God. Now, I say that carefully because uh, there's, there's two different ways we complain. You know, sometimes we complain arrogantly as though we know better than God, you know. If I was God, this is what I'd do. And that's not the way that, um, that Heman is complaining. His complaint is, why aren't you hearing? Why aren't you responding? The reality is we won't always understand God's purposes. We don't always see the picture that God sees. We don't know what is beyond our vision. God's shoulders are broad enough, though, for us to say, God, what's going on in this space? Why aren't you doing this? What's the purpose of that? God's not phased by that if we do it in humility. And if we jump to Psalm 103, verse 14, there's one other observation that's also worth making. And I think this is a really significant one. Psalm 100 and, what did I say it was? 103, verse 14, uh, reminds us that God knows how we were formed. He knows that we were made from dust. In other words, God knows our limitations. He knows that we're not able to see the big picture. He knows that we're going to struggle. He knows that we'll experience despair. And he doesn't condemn us for that. In fact, if you're looking at that passage, uh, if you read uh, verse 13 there in Psalm 103, it says, "'As a father has compassion on his children,' So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God is like a father. We talked about that last week with Father's Day, who knows the limitation of his children. We know that a small child can't do certain things. We know that a little child can't grasp certain concepts. We know that they don't understand everything that's going on. God looks upon us in that way. And that's a great comfort and a great joy to know. What then does grief teach us? Let me just make a couple of observations before we conclude to bring us back to that place uh, where we started thinking about the impact of the coronavirus and the grief associated with that. Well, perhaps the most obvious statement that we could make is um, in this space that um, grief reminds us that we live in a fallen world. And although we go to great efforts to try and make our world safe and to secure everything and plan our future, to make our environment predictable so that there's no nasty surprises. <clears throat> the reality is the impact of sin on our world will bring stuff unstuck. And it may be our sin, it may be the sin of others, it may just be the impact of corporate sin, the sinful world that we're part of. And until Christ returns, ours will continue to be a world characterised by loss and sadness and tears. But that's not the end of the story. Because if we jump to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4, there we find described in this passage, right at the end of the scripture, God bringing about a new creation, this, uh, this new Jerusalem that comes down, a new heaven and earth that has been created 
the first earth and first heaven have passed away. Uh, new city, the holy city of Jerusalem coming down uh, like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband and a loud voice saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying for the old order of things has passed away. That's something ahead. We're not there yet. In, uh, in this fallen world, there will continue to be grief. I've often said at funerals that we grieve because we love and we grieve deeply when we love deeply. And one of the opportunities that grief actually invites us to reflect on, and you may not have thought about this, is uh, are we actually in love with stuff we shouldn't be in love with? Now, I'm not suggesting that in relation to a husband or a wife or family member. Uh, But you know what? Sometimes we hold on to stuff in life, don't we, that become idols. And if they are taken away, we grieve. And grief can sometimes point to the fact that we were holding on to stuff that we should not have been holding on to. Something else grief does at a very practical level, it um, challenges the notion that we are in charge of our own lives. I've kind of alluded to that. The reality is we're not. And the last comment I'd make is this. Grief contrasts to the hope that we have. And for the Christian, this is a really significant observation because the grief that we experience in whatever context is not the end of the story. The grief and the despair that Heman experienced was very real, but it's not the final word on the life that God had for us. Even in the deepest grief, Paul says, we do not grieve like the pagans. He was writing to the Thessalonian church when he wrote these words. He said, friends, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who died. The church was concerned about what was going to happen to those who'd passed away, believing that in their lifetime Jesus would come back and take them to be with him, but some had passed away. What was going to happen to those people? And so Paul said, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who died or grieve like the rest of those who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all of those who have fallen asleep in him. And then Paul goes on to say, we can know these things and we can hold fast to this hope because it's clearly expressed in God's word his steadfast and trustworthy word. (coughs) And though, like Heman, we might struggle to see light at the end of the tunnel, though we might have our sight obscured by despair, (coughs) there is still hope and there is still life that God... God says there is life and God does not lie. We're going to pray and I just invite you in this space to... uh, Be quiet before God, perhaps consider your circumstances, think about loss that you may have experienced yourself. And we offer this prayer as a prayer of life and healing. Lord, we thank you that you are an ever-present God who helps us in times of trouble, who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, who has lifted us from the pit and put our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, today we acknowledge that each one of us has experienced loss and grief to some extent. 
whether through this coronavirus period or perhaps in other contexts, perhaps mildly, perhaps more acutely. Lord, today we pour out our hearts before you because we know you're the only one who in deep compassion can hear us and out of your enormous goodness can grant to us peace and because of your mercy can bring restoration. Lord, we're mindful of our tendency to hold on to people and possessions, to put our trust in gold and silver, to depend on our own energy, our own resources instead of you, and in times of crisis can be left gasping and unsure of what to do or what to do uh, to make our way forward. There are times when our words, when our words fail us, when prayer seems to be empty of power, when our connection with you appears to be tenuous, when you are silent in the face of our cries and when our needs and desires seem far from your hands. And in this space today, we pray that you would remind us that you are a God who is present, who is always at work, who is always bringing about outcomes that will result in your glory and that the hope that we have in Christ is grounded in truth and reality. Even today, Lord, we pray for those who struggle with anxiety and depression and despair, those whose lives are characterised by waves of darkness. Gracious God, we pray that in that space and into those hearts you will bring your healing and restoration, your peace and your comfort, your love and your strength. Remind us, Lord, remind us of those around us who we can be an encouragement to, who we can express friendship to, who we can make meaningful contact with. Help us to be people of love and light into the lives of those around us. And Lord Jesus, to you again, we submit ourselves as, you are, as your willing servants, desiring to do your will, to see your will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.